Thank you. A lot of times, is uh, you know, preaching is not just simply public speaking, but it's not less than that. And so, as a public speaker with rhetoric, you want to try to have like a catchy intro to kind of grab the listener's attention, um, which I don't think I'm really good at that on a general basis. Anyway, that's just what they teach you. Um, but I think if I just read the passage this morning, or maybe even just the title of the thing right there. I think it'll pretty much grab most of your attention. So let's just go ahead and read um, this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling, and likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold, pearls, and costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. I think we should pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word, revealing it to us, and you are just that. You are the Lord, and so I pray that you would help us to have your wisdom as we seek to understand your will, and I pray that you would give us an inclination of heart, an eagerness, and a willingness to want to obey. I pray with this uh, subject, which is controversial and um, so personal with so many, I pray that you would just grant us patience and humility uh, to faithfully understand your will for your household, uh, the church. So I ask these things in the name of Jesus and with the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So yeah, obviously that passage there uh, is uh, one that in in this you know 21st century uh, might sound a little offensive. You know, as I had this, I read this passage. You know, uh, most of you know, many of you know, I have a wife. Uh, she's a woman, and I have children, and they're all women. And so we talked about this passage in our house. And I'm pretty sure the word sexist <laughs> came up more than once in these conversations. And so in a uh, you know, 21st century uh, Me Too gender equality culture, reading a passage like this, you know, um, I don't know if it would promote tics or allergic reactions or, or, or what could potentially happen, um, but... Uh, nevertheless, we come across this passage, and as a church, we are committed to um, working our way through the biblical material. And one of the reasons that we do that is for this very text right here. We don't want to, as a church, just pick and choose what's comfortable and what would be easy and what, does, you know, what would most people in this part of the world want to hear, and we'll just tell them that. Okay, so we're working our way through Timothy, and so here we are. And so this is a real, um, for us, uh, definitely this is an opportunity for us to demonstrate submission to Jesus as our Lord. Okay, we believe that God has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He rose again. He has ascended to the Father's right hand where He sits in power and authority. He is indeed the Lord. And He has made His will known to His people through the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Scriptures. And so for us, you know, why would... I'm going to give you a couple of reasons here. Why would we you know, publicly as a church engage this topic? Because it's for us to demonstrate that Jesus is our Lord. And that His 
words shape us, not the other way around. Does that make sense? I think it's also um, important that, you know, why would we um, address this topic? I think because uh, it's, there's just, there's been a lot of uh, pain in and around this issue. Okay? Uh, there's been, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misunderstanding uh, that surround this issue. And so uh, it's not one that we would want to uh, dodge or skip over or skim over. The relationship between men and women, specifically the relationship between men and women in the church, but that also would carry out to men and women in the home. And so because of those reasons, because of some of the pain, some of the hurt, the confusion that surrounds it, it's important for us to talk about it. We're going to be addressing it this week, the next week, and the following week. Okay, so we're going to dig in. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to sit in this. We're going to talk about it. We're going to think it through. It's going to be a time for our questions and answers. Um, and so we just want to work carefully, patiently, and humbly through this. Uh, one other reason about how... Um, or excuse me, why we would engage this topic um, is has everything to do with really First Timothy. First Timothy, as I've said over and over and over again, I like to repeat the main emphasis of the book. The metaphor that we've been using, that is used in First Timothy three, is that we are God's household. The church of the living God is God's household, and that's our identity, and that identity leads to an activity, which means that we, that's who we are, and so therefore, what do we do? We display God to the world. That's, that's what His household is supposed to be. And so if, if outsiders come or we go to them, they're able to see what God is like. And so, you know, a faithful representation of who God is to the world is important. You know, and so this issue about how men and women interact, and, and really the issue as we're going to see here is going to come down to authority. You know, each household, would, God has set up authority for households, and, and who has that authority, and how do they exercise that authority? It's important issues that are at stake with this conversation. And as I said just a couple of minutes ago, you know, there's, there's, personal, <laughs> there's personal issues in this for me too. Uh, you know, obviously I mentioned my daughters, you know, my wife. I, you know, it, you know, if you knew me before and when I was a young man, the, you know, that's the first time I've ever said that. I crossed over. I just got old. you would think it's very ironic that the Lord has given me three daughters. And so I feel like, in a sense, that uh, you know, I've got investment in this conversation because it's not just theoretical even for me as a man getting up here and talking about this. I want my wife and my daughters to flourish in God's household. And so I want to know what God says about human flourishing between men and women in his household. And so I do think there's definitely some significant issues at stake. Now, so those are some reasons why we would, why would we address this? You know, it's, it's the, we want to demonstrate our submission to Jesus. We want to, you know, it's recognize that there's some difficulty and pain and confusion. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, and then also, this is about displaying human flourishing in the kingdom of God to the world, and that's significant for us. Um, and so those are some reasons why we would, we would take the time to go through this. So why do we engage this topic? Okay, good, go through there. Now, how do we engage this topic? Well, first, I would say that we want to engage this topic of whether or not women can have authority in the church. That's what we just read there, and apparently at face value, although we'll talk about it in a few minutes, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority uh, in God's household. Okay? Now, Christians disagree on the interpretation of that. Some legitimate, 
Gospel-believing Christians believe that women should be allowed to be elders, pastors, teachers, have authority in the church. And then there's Christians that don't believe that. And both, well, in the best sense, both camps, although I want to be careful, I put it in air quotes, uh, would go back to the Bible. And they, have, they, they try to interpret the Bible. And so those camps are, there's labels for them. And so a complementarian camp, men and women are equal in their essence and value, but they have distinct roles assigned by God to display the fullness of His person and His work. That would be the, the camp within Christianity that would say that women don't have the role of being a pastor or an elder. An egalitarian uh, would say that men and women are equal in essence and value, similar, and they are fully interchangeable in the roles that display the fullness and person of God's work. And so in, in that viewpoint, those people would argue that women ought to be ordained and have authority in God's household. So, again, there's so much in this conversation, this debate. I'm trying to streamline it and be clear and helpful. There's two kind of camps. Now, how, again, how do we have this debate? We talked about why it's important, but how are we going to do this now? Are we going to, you know, we're going to go to our corners and in this corner, you know, with these seven important official Christian leaders in church history on their side, we've got the complementarians. This is my boxing analogy. And on this corner over here, we've got the egalitarians, and oh, they, man, they've got a long list of really important uh, theologians as well. No, we're not going to try to make this a war. It's camps, yes, but there's also a spectrum here. And so, in the red, the two red zones there, okay, those would be places that would be outside of faithful biblical teaching. Okay? So, patriarchy would say that men and women are distinct in their essence and that men are superior to women. Okay? The Bible, that, that, that is an aberration of Scripture. It violates all kinds of Scripture passages. I could start in Genesis 1, where Adam and Eve are both made in the image of God, and both of them are given the what is theologians call the cultural mandate, which is that men and women are to rule, subdue, multiply, and fill the earth. They're to do that together, in a sense, as kings and queens. So, you know, and I could go to a host of other passages. So, patriarchy would be out, but certainly someone in the, some in the Christian sphere would, you know, they would be in that camp, and I would say that they need to repent of that view and, and change. As you move more to the center, the green zone here is the good zone. I put this as kind of like yellowish. There's a little bit of green in there. It's kind of like on the other side of that line, the evangelical, well, let me go to the, the far, the far, you're right, radical feminism. Anytime you use the word radical, it's like, oh, it must be bad. Okay, I <laughs> so... Okay, but people who hold that position would say that, that God doesn't even assign gender. That that's not, that's, it's all a social construct. Okay? And so that would be, again, you go back to Genesis 1, God does assign gender. He made them male and female. Jesus repeated that in speaking about marriage, that God made them male and female. So... And there would be some that would still say, yeah, we're Christians, and they would hold those views and say, well, no, that's actually outside of Orthodox Christian teaching. In the middle here, you know, near that gap, there's definitely still a gap, but near that gap would be the evangelical egalitarians, which are the people, which, by the way, the, the, the radical feminist position would often say things about the text we just read that that Paul actually was mistaken there. He's actually a first century misogynist, and you should just disregard that section of the Bible. I read articles like that this week, okay? In Christian journals, okay? So they would undermine the authority of the Bible. Evangelical egalitarians don't do that. When they get to a passage like this and it says, I don't permit a woman to teach, they're going to talk a lot about the cultural context there, what was happening in that church, in that city, which was Ephesus at the time. 
and they're going to say, like head coverings. Remember when we did, if you were here, 1 Corinthians 11? They're going to go, like, just like, you know, Paul said, you, you know, women should wear head coverings as a sign of being under submission. That was a cultural thing that we don't need, is not for everybody in all churches at all times. Same thing here, they're going to argue, that this isn't a statement for all churches at all times that women can never have authority. See what they're doing there? They're actually trying to come under the authority of the Bible. And for me, I cheer that. And I say, good job. I mean, I don't agree with it necessarily, but I say, if you're going to disagree, you go to the scriptures. You try to have the scriptures be authoritative. In fact, Week in and week out, as I prepare sermons and research scripture, many of the people I read are right here. Okay? They believe the gospel like we believe. They're committed to the inerrancy of the scriptures. They have a different view about women being an authority. And so for that situation right there, that's not like our boxing gloves necessarily have to be up. It's just like, in a sense, agree to disagree agreeably with charity that we see this differently. And then the evangel- evangelical just means gospel, people who are committed to the gospel. So the evangelical complementarian is, is where we've landed. But even within that, you know, I could put another slide up here. There's a spectrum even within that. And so what I'm trying to do is just try to be sensitive to this. As we approach how are we going to approach this issue, we're going to try to do it with humility. We're not you know, just going to assume that we're in the right on all of this. If you remember a few weeks back as we were beginning chapter 2 and we were talking about prayer, the way that Timothy talked about prayer challenged us as a church and we said we need to grow and become more conformed to what's going on here. And I think the same thing is true here. As we think about the role of women in the church, we need to grow and be conformed about what that actually means and what it doesn't mean. And that's what the next few weeks are going to be about. So, again, how are we going to do this? We're going to do it humbly. Part of doing it humbly, another aspect of that, is that we are going to own what is appropriate for us when the church has gotten this issue wrong. Here's what I mean by that. And it's a strong word. It's abuse. Okay? So on this spectrum... In the name of the Bible, and under patriarchy, because men say we're better, we're superior, there has been verbal, physical, sexual abuse that has happened in God's household. And, because the men are the leaders, who are they accountable to? Who's holding them accountable? Who's removing them? Who's, you know? And so, women have been, and children have been hurt. And so, that is awful and dangerous. And if the church is supposed to display the character of God, and that's what's happening, you wonder why the world scoffs at us? So there's, you know, we just need to be aware, and we want to be then as faithful. If we're going to say, you know, we want to be evangelical complementarians, well, yes, that's the case, but there is no room for any kind of abuse or to use the teenage school word. There's no, there's no place for bullying in the household of God. Amen? And that has happened. And we need to be faithful. And, and, this, and Timothy is actually going to talk to you what you do with an unfaithful elder who's misusing his authority. He's going to tell you what to do with them in chapter 5. Okay? There's another one that's, you know, as we talk about how we're going to do this, we're going to do it humbly, and we're going to, in a sense, own, and and where there's some weaknesses, it's not just abuse. I mean, you know, good night, that's enough of a problem. But there's also the problem of marginalization. Ron, thanks for that cough drop last week. When you gave it to me, I said, that probably won't help. After the sermon, I was like, how rude. Anyway, so thank you. Redeem myself. The issue of, you know, okay, men are supposed to be the ones in authority and teaching and leading, and, and Paul says to find other faithful men who can train and, and uh, you know, teach them and, and disciple them. 
But somehow, somewhere along the way, a lot of folks in this camp, and I would say myself and, and to, to a degree some in this church as well, lost an emphasis on discipling, training, equipping, launching, serving sisters. And so we want to just be aware of that as well and say, you know, how can we, um, instead of asking, in a sense, the question of, well, what, woman, what can a woman not do? You know, maybe we should just start asking the question, what can they do and what should they be doing? And having a, a mindset switch. And I've been, it's not that I was never aware of this. I share this with 101 and I'll share just a short story here. I've got a couple of... Uh, One's in the bag on this issue for sure over the years. You can talk to Dan Lindsay, extending all the way back to my teenage days. Been battling this issue for uh, about 25 years or so. But anyway, this one's more recent. When I moved here, um, you know, I definitely had chauvinistic things going on in my heart. For sure. Um, so, you know, you just got to call it what it is. Okay, I... I think probably men, it would be good to just say, I wonder if I'm a chauvinist. Not saying every man here is, because I was. But you should probably wonder that. And probably if you're a woman, you should ask if you're a raging feminist. No. <laughs> oh, man, my father-in-law told me to be careful with the jokes. That one was right there. When we, when we planted Trinity Church... Um, I told this to 101, um, it became very evident very quickly that my wife was out-pastoring me. <laughs> There's a little bit too many heads nodding there on agreement. <laughs> Makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, as far as taking care of people, did you get back to this person? Did you talk to this person? Did you reach out to that person? Did you do this? In my mind, it's like, listen, sister, I am preaching. That's what I do. I preach whole pastoring side, and it would bother me. It, would, it, it, uh, it irritated my pride, and I would get upset and frustrated and angry with Julie. Like, I'll get back to them when I need to get back to them. And it was it's just, it was ugly. And that's where the Lord really used that time frame to say, Mike, the issue of men or women having authority in the church is not one whatsoever of capability and capacity. It's just not. It's an issue of God-assigned roles, in my view, in what I think the Scriptures teach. And so, um, you know, I just think we, and, and at that point in time, you know, I actually called my mom. I said, Mom, do you feel like I've ever oppressed you before? I just started talking to the ladies that I knew. that I don't want to be like this. I want to promote and see all the things that God has designed for the sisters in Christ to be able to do in his household. And so I think that's, part of owning this and moving forward and displaying to the world um, a healthy, good, well-ordered household is men and women uh, treating one another with worth and dignity and being willing to defer to one another in roles and responsibilities. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. I think if you want to see it well in literature, you should read the Chronicles of Narnia and see how C.S. Lewis presents the four siblings. High King Peter, High King Edmund, and Queen Susan and Queen Lucy. And the different roles and responsibilities they take, but the respect with which they treat one another, it's an awesome uh, narrative uh, display of it. So anyway, we're going to do it with humility. We're going to own uh, what we need to own, but we're also going to do it with hopefulness that uh, the Lord will do His work in us to help us um, to display this faithful representation of, of what it means to be male and female in God's household. I mean, such a crucial issue uh, in the church for us. So, the third issue here, <coughs> excuse me, is, okay, why uh, are we going to look at this topic? How are we going to look at this topic? And I would add, by the way, that we want to be patient with it, we want to ask questions, we want to be humble, we want to be open. Um, the last one here is, what does this text say about this topic? And I would say that it says 
three things. I think there's a promise made. I think there's a prohibition made. Excuse me, there's a uh, there's what is permitted, what is prohibited, and what is promised. Those are the three things that, in the rest of the time that we have left to look at. And I will say this now, ever, well, except, for, except for the first one, what's permitted. The other two points, and the, the, in a sense the sub-points underneath them, are contested on almost every word. Okay? And so... It is perfectly legitimate, and you probably ought to have questions about this. And, again, we're going to do a Q&A Sunday morning, not next week, but the following week, whatever, uh, 9th, 16th. And so you can submit questions. Um, you can ask questions personally, all that kind of stuff. So we just want to get this conversation, uh, you know, moving forward and along. So these things are contested. But first, look at me. look with me again at... We'll go back to the original slide here. I do not... Uh, nope. Did I miss? First Timothy 2. Yeah, I did not put verse 11 on there, did I? That's really important. Good thing. Let a woman learn. That's the first thing. So... The issue in the first century church there in God's household was that during that first century, it was not terribly common even for women to be able to learn. Um, certainly within the Jewish culture, there was lots of conversation about you know, statements like, I'm, you know, blessed be God that he made me a man and not a woman. Those type of prayers were offered to the Lord that it would be better for the law to be burned than to fall into the hands of a woman. So like the Jewish mindset, and even to a degree the Greco-Roman mindset of that first century was that you know, women were kind of kept outside of the important matters of theology, philosophy, and doctrine. And if you look at Luke chapter 10, Jesus bursting onto the scene here in His life, you know, He brings Mary in, and Martha is assuming the normal role for women in that society. She was uh, doing domestic affairs, getting ready to serve the meal and things. And she gets frustrated with her sister because Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus with all of these other men. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to, in a sense, send her to the domestic affairs. She has chosen what is good, and she's going to sit at my feet and learn. She has chosen what is good and necessary. And so Jesus is rewriting the script, so to speak, against that patriarchy, and he's moving it more into an equality type of situation. And so, you know, for us, it doesn't have that much purchase to it. It's like, of course the woman could be in there and learn. But in the first century, if you're in the Ephesus and you're hearing this read to you at church, that's going to be a little bit more of catching your ear, catching your attention. So most, you know, both egalitarians and complementarians would agree that Paul is clearly saying here that it's okay for a woman to learn anything that they want to learn about Jesus. I don't think we should undersell that very much. Because what it tells you is that, and, and this is a pitfall actually that pastors fall into, I have fallen into it, I study the Bible so only so that I can preach the Bible and it bypasses my heart. You don't just study about God so you can teach about it. You study about God for the sake of knowing God. And He's available to anyone and everyone freely, male, female, young, old, rich, poor. That make sense? So we all, it's one of our identities that we live out. We are disciples. We are learners. And so... You know, we would want to be a church where in every context we are trying to educate, inform, um, uh, empower, if that's even the right word, uh, women to know God accurately in all of His fullness and glory. So let a, woman, let a woman learn quietly with submissiveness. So that's what's permitted. Now let's look at verse 12, and this is where the real controversy starts. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So, 
what Paul seems to be prohibiting here is two words, teach and exercise authority. And the debate swirls on, is that two different things? Teaching and exercising authority, they're distinct. Or is it like he's just prohibiting authoritative type teaching? Or is he just prohibiting authority and a woman still can teach? And to make matters more complicated, and if I'm losing you, I guess that's fine. I mean, I'm just telling you, this is a debate. The word for authority here is a word that's never used anywhere else in the New Testament. And I'm like, ah! It's normally equated with, in, in other literature of that time, a negatively expressed authority. So those who think that women should be ordained are saying, no, Paul is saying that women, not that they can't have any authority, but they can't misuse authority. And that there's a big debate about that. Greek word is authetain. What can they authorize? It's kind of where we get that word. So, to kind of boil that down, say, okay, well, Michael, what do you really think? I don't want to hear about all these views. I get it. And for the sake of time, we don't have it. I think it's kind of like a kit and caboodle type situation. You know that phrase? The whole kit and caboodle? I'm not actually talking about a kit and a caboodle. It's, ref- it's kind of like one idea expressed in, with two words. Okay? And we see this actually a lot in this very chapter. Uh, chapter. It's a, a, lit- a literary device that Paul uses. And so he says in chapter 2 and verse 2 that we're to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. He's basically saying, pray for the leaders, right? Or he says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Is it good or is it pleasing? Well, good and pleasing mean the same thing, basically. It's kind of one idea. Verse 4, he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Are those different? Is getting saved different than coming to the knowledge of the truth? No, no, it's one idea. And so then, if, I mean, that's like... Four, three or four times within like one little paragraph, you get like a few sentences later and he says, teach and have authority. That's a, liter- you know, that's a device he's been using here, a rhetorical device that he's using to express this idea that he is not allowing women to teach in an authoritative way in God's household. I think that's the best way to understand what's happening there. Nobody, well, some people would, maybe on the far side of the patriarchy scale. No one thinks that women can't talk at all. Because if you sang this morning, you would be, and you're a woman, you would be violating it. Okay? Which, you know, people are like, well, no, that's not what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about how women pray in the assembly and prophesy in the assembly. And want me to tell you something that I'm not confident about, that's vexing me at the moment? Go to 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ, 1227. You're the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Anyone get what that means? Women are allowed to prophesy. And that's what number on the list? Two. What comes after two? Teaching. Three. What are women not allowed to do? Teach with authority. (laughs) This is not so straightforward and cut and dry, brothers and sisters. So apparently women are allowed to prophesy in the assembly, which is a higher gifting, but they're not allowed to teach, which is a lower gifting. I'm not sure. And that's why we should have some humility. Now, and then you can ask this question. Well, what is authoritative teaching? Is what I'm doing right now authoritative teaching? I think you could make a pretty good case that it is. Is if we have an adult Sunday school class or the diaconate training or a gospel community or 
And now it's like, <laughs> now I feel like we're just making stuff up. <laughs> None of those contexts are in the Bible. And so we're trying to take a principle which talks about authoritative teaching and try to apply it. Now there is one, and this is uh, the Presbyterians, and I think they nail it on this one. And, you know, you know, I agree a lot usually. I didn't mean to agree with Tim Keller on this. I just, he's smart. And it's not him. It's actually the Presbyterians. But I feel very confident at the least on this view. Authoritative teaching is given to the elders to admit and to remove people from the assembly. If someone's teaching is wrong, it is the elder's responsibility to go, which is exactly what he's telling Timothy to do here, you go there and you correct that, and if they don't, you hand them over to Satan. That, my friends, is authoritative teaching. It's like, almost like evaluating the accuracy of the gospel presentation. And the same would be true for behavior. If someone's behavior is not in keeping in line with the gospel and they refuse to repent, then the same thing. Then the elders can step in and use the authority that God has given them to remove that person from the assembly. That, my friends, brothers and sisters, is authoritative teaching. And so I, I would at least feel very comfortable in saying that God has reserved that role for the, the men in the church that that expression of authoritative teaching is that. And then, in a sense, everything else is kind of like a conversation which makes us uncomfortable. But I think that's where the New Testament leaves us. So, we just have to work through the issues together. We have to pray, we have to think, we have to analyze, all of those types of things. And so, the way that Keller says it is that a woman in his church can do anything that a non-ordained man can do. So, I think that's a pretty good starting point for how we would interact uh, with uh, this material. When Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach and exercise authority, that's really pointing toward, and we're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 3, that's really pointing to the office of the elder. And so the office of the elder, uh, we, I think here, the Lord is saying, is reserved for men. Okay? All right. Next. Why? And I'm, I got my eye on the clock here. We'll, we're not going to get all the way through everything today. We've, that's why we got a few weeks for this. Why does he say this? And this is where the part that really, you know, you know, when people say the hair stands up on the back of your neck, has that ever actually happened to anyone? Has anyone? Right, seriously, I'm just curious. A few people, okay, good. That's never happened to me. Anyway, if you think the hair on the back of your neck is going to stand up when he says, I don't allow a woman to teach, when he gives you the reasons why, you know, it's like, excuse me, Paul? The first reason <laughs> is because Adam was formed first. <laughs> Does that work with your kids if you have more than one? They're fighting and arguing. No, he should have the toy. Why? I had it first. <laughs> if you use that in my house, that was a guarantee you are not getting that toy or that cookie or that whatever. Adam was formed first. That's the reason? And so what I think we move into now here is we move into, again, this is where I think there needs to be some humility, we move into some of the mystery of God's design in creation. God assigned a leadership role, which makes sense if you're a leader. Being a leader, here's a good definition of being a leader. You do the right thing first. When everyone else is doing the wrong thing, you step up and do the right thing first. What are you? You're a leader. So there is a sense in which being first makes you a leader. Okay? And so God created Adam first. 
Then He created Eve. But notice, He created Eve from Adam's side. The famous uh, commentator, Puritan commentator Matthew Henry said, not from His head to dominate Him, not from His feet to be trampled by Him, but from His side to be equal with Him and loved by Him, close to His heart. I think that's some good exegesis. So Eve is His equal, but she had a specific role designed by God that only she could fulfill, by the way. And Adam couldn't do what God called him to do apart from Eve. She's not an ancillary helper. She is an essential helper. God's household doesn't function without women. So, and by the way, people are always quick to add, and I think it's a good thing to add, that word helper, the Hebrew word ezer, is used actually most often of God Himself. He is Israel's helper. Israel's never going to be what God wants them to be without Him being there as there. And the church is never going to be what God wants it to be without the Azares, the women. So, God has assigned roles, equal in essence and dignity and value, and yet God gives distinct roles. Let me give one other thought here, just because we were doing this with the teens and the Trinity. There is relational rationale for this. The God we worship, how many gods do we worship? One. And how many persons? Three. They're good. You're orthodox. If you, want to have, if you want to test your orthodoxy, look up Tim Challey's Trinity Quiz. 33 questions to find out if you're a heretic. Are the Father and the Son equal in essence and dignity and value? Do they have different functions? The Son willingly offered Himself to the Father. He was willing to do it for the sake and glory of the Father. He's not less than God. If you, that makes you a heretic. Okay. Not less than God. He's equal to God, but He willingly takes on a servant role in order to accomplish the will and glory of God. And if we're made in His image as human beings, as image bearers, then it would make sense that that equal in dignity but different in function would, would exist. And God says it does exist in the church, in His household, and in our households. So, you know, what does He prohibit? This idea of authoritative teaching, you know, uh, and specifically, we would stop there at, you know, we would, for now, again, I think, as a, I think as a leadership team and I think as a church, we just need to admit we don't have all the answers and we're still figuring some stuff out. Are you guys okay with that? I hope so because I don't have, if you're saying, well, I hope Pastor Mike has all the answers, I'm just telling you I don't, okay? And I'll tell you as well, none of the other elders do either. Okay? So he prohibits, you know, that role, that function of office and elder for the, for the men, but the reason why he prohibits it is because he has good designs uh, in creating us as image bearers. And again, remember, the whole point of the church is to reflect the character of God, and so it would make sense if we're going to reflect a God who is equal in value and distinct in function, then it would make sense that God would build into His household equal human beings that are equal in dignity but distinct in function. Does that make sense? Now, the second reason is the, is the, is the real humdinger. And that is that it's, He says that the woman was deceived. Adam was firm first, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So it sounds like what? That Paul is saying something to this effect. Well, it was the woman's fault. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that what that sounds like? If she wasn't so gullible, we wouldn't be here. Now, I just can't accept that that is what he's saying here. I know that's what it sounds like. I know that's what that looks like. But just knowing from other places in Paul and how he speaks about women, that that is not his view. 
And I think here is where we actually get a lot of help from the other camp and the exegesis and the study that they do of the Scriptures in the historical context. We know from the historical context that there were women in Ephesus at that particular time. This particular church had a significant number of women who were gullible. I don't think that's Trinity's issue. Praise God from all blessings flow. But this church was struggling with that. And so in a sense, he's reminding them that, you know, in, in every other place, by the way, when Paul talks about the original sin, he blames Adam. Except here. It's the only place he doesn't. And so, I think there's a contextual thing going on here. There was a particular problem. This is not a problem that every church has in every generation across the globe that women are just more gullible than men. Because in fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that he's afraid that the whole church, men and women, will be deceived like Eve was deceived. So men are gullible too. You know, we all watch infomercials and think, oh yes. Okay, so, I think this comment is made, Paul's developing from Genesis 1, he's actually moving right through the story. God created Adam, then he created Eve, then the serpent tempted Eve, then Eve fell, and then God made a promise that he would restore and save Eve, which we'll see in verse 15 in a second. So I think what's happening here with this particular comment is that there were uh, a group of uh, deceivable, simple women who were not focused on the gospel and God's household, and Paul is reminding them and saying how susceptible they can be to false doctrine which will lead them astray from God. That's what's happening I think in Ephesus, and I think that's why that yeah, Paul includes that in this conversation. I do not think he is saying that uh, this hierarchical, ontological, which means es- the essence that, that women are essentially more gullible and, and prone to false teaching than men. I just don't think that is what he's saying. It is a contextual issue, a historical context issue that many of these women were struggling with this. And just to, you know, kind of quickly address it. And if you go to 2 Timothy, which is the same historical context there, um, he says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 6, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray with various passions. There were false teachers in Ephesus that were preying on weak women, women who might not have had the same educational opportunities as men, who had difficulty, they were widows, he talks about in 1 Timothy 5, and that some of them were wealthy and had, had options, and they were led astray by their wealth, and so these uh, false teaching men were preying upon these women in the same way that Satan was preying upon Eve. And Paul is saying, you're susceptible to this, so instead of giving in to this and trying to rise up to authority, which you shouldn't be doing, you should be learning and listening to God's given uh, teachers for you that He has provided. I think that's a faithful representation of what's happening here. And so again, I, I don't think that has a ton of application for us right here, right now at Trinity Church. Now, let those who stand take heed lest they fall. I mean... I don't perceive that there's this massive need that a lot of the women in our church are just silly and gullible. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite, and I actually praise God for that. Amen. The last thing that he promises here, um, so you got the permission, the prohibition, and the promise, and that is just that um, in verse 15, and this is hotly debated, she will be saved through childbearing. I think this is a reference to Eve. It's singular. She will be saved. The word saved in Timothy and all of Paul always means what you think it means. Saved. Fully saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth. The problem is, is through childbearing. I thought you were saved by grace through faith. I thought you were saved by believing in Jesus. I thought you were saved by repenting of your sins in the name of Jesus. You're saved through childbearing? What if I'm barren? What if I'm not married? You know. So I, I think there's a bunch of problems with that particular view, I think what this is saying 
in the original here, and this is where I think careful study helps, it doesn't just say she will be saved through childbearing. It says she will be saved through the childbearing. Makes it definite. And he's talking about Genesis 3, where there was Adam and Eve and the fall, and then God makes a promise that through the seed of the woman, salvation would come. And so Paul is saying to these women that you know, maybe have been taken captive, they've been uh, you know, uh, duped by these false teachers, and they've gone into this, and they've transgressed, and they've done things that they shouldn't do, and there's this kind of, uh, they feel demeaned or low about this. Paul comes at the end of this and makes a promise and says, just like Eve was redeemed by the Messiah, all the women here can be redeemed by the Messiah. So I'm like, okay, that's encouraging. I think that's a better... Now again, lots of debate on that, but I think that is the most faithful rendering of it. And then if you have an ESV, it says, she will be saved through childbearing, and then it says, if they... Who's the they? But there's a dash there. And again, again, I'm not trying to pull the Greek card on you, but just so you know, the Bible was written in Greek, and I do read it. It's probably best to translate this because there's a dash. Paul's thought trails off and he assumes a subject. She will be saved through the childbirth of the Messiah and so will the women who just have fallen into sin like Eve did. They will be saved if what? If they have faith. (laughs) There it is. The women who fall into transgression will be saved if they have faith And that faith works itself through love and self-control. And that's the promise. And so that brings us back to an equality issue here, that men and women are equally saved. This is Galatians 3, that there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's the segue to the Lord's table here. The Lord's table, this is where you come... And it's by faith. I, you know, I wish it was the new heavens and new earth right now with Jesus at the head of the table and we could literally see him face to face and eat a meal with him. That would be awesome. But it's like, who gets to sit at the table? Men or women? Who, who can come? And in the kingdom of God, as a witness right now to all of our equality, all of us, men and women, are free if we believe in Jesus and have confessed our sins in His name, we can come to the table and Jesus personally will meet with us and nourish us through this meal and cause us to become like Him so that we can faithfully represent Him to the world. That you will be saved through the birth of the Messiah. So, I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to pray and prepare your heart to be able to come forward and take the Lord's Supper. And then I'll come up and read our portion of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 10 uh, to prepare us. Father, Thank you for your word, and I pray that you would just give us humility and patience to try to understand it, and also great joy and great hope that through the birth of Jesus, which came through the woman, apart from a man, that redemption is accomplished for all of mankind. And so I pray that our hearts would rise with that hope and that joy. In Jesus' name, amen.